want to thank Pastor Brian for uh, preaching last Sunday. If you missed last week outside, you missed a, a wonderful day. It was uh, beautiful. It's good to see some of our friends who hadn't been able to be with us uh, for a while. And uh, you missed a good Sunday. Good message from uh, the Ten Commandments, which Pastor Brian will pick up again and preach on in the month of June. But uh, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 11. And in particular, let me stress that you have a copy of the Bible in front of you, uh, whether it's under the chair in front of you or on your phone. Please have one open so you can follow along today. Uh, Really think it will be helpful to you. And of course, it's always important to see what I'm talking about uh, right in front of you. Revelation chapter 11. Since it's been three weeks, just let me give you a brief recap of of where we've been. Uh, We began looking at the seven churches of Revelation. That was the first section of seven. Then we looked next at the seven seals. That's the second section of seven things we'll see in Revelation. And, And most recently, we've been in the seven trumpet judgments. That's the third cycle or third section. We're kind of right in the middle. Uh, We are in chap. We've been in chapters ten and eleven, which is kind of a kind of an intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet. These trumpets have been pretty intense, and so God uh, gives John a a pause, if you will, between trumpet six and trumpet seven. Same thing took place between seal six and seal seven. Another interlude there, and so this pattern repeats itself for us. Again, we want to pick up where we left off and continue uh, our study in the seven trumpets, but in this portion of chapter 11. So, uh, our passage is short today, Um, so let me read uh, our passage. Actually, let me read through verse 3 this morning, and then we'll uh, begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Quicken us, strengthen us, enable us by your good spirit to hear your word today. Savior, I ask in your precious name, amen. Well, the word of God tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. This is not a new verse to you, quite familiar. But we have to begin by asking, as Paul says, are these the last, last days? Are we in the last days? Is this, is this the period of time we're talking about? Well, according to Peter, it is. According to God's Word, it is. Acts chapter 2, uh, on the day of Pentecost... Peter stands up and says, in these last days, and addresses 
the crowd of Jewish men. We've been in the last days since the Holy Spirit came down at the day of Pentecost. So, yes, this is for us. But then it goes on, in these last days there will come times of difficulty, seasons of difficulty. You could even say there will be savage times. There's no question that that's true of our era. I rarely watch TV news anymore. And what little I see, I see in restaurants where we go to eat where they have a TV on. And Friday night, the lead story was uh, another mass shooting. Uh, it was followed closely by the second story of another a more virulent strain of the coronavirus and then followed up by uh, more cautions and concerns about the vaccine. Is there any doubt? These are difficult times. Even savage times. It's no surprise to Christ, the head of the church. It's no surprise to our Lord and Savior that these times would come and are in fact here. In fact, he even announced things like these. He announced that they would take place throughout this age. Uh, and he announced this in the seven seals. And he's announced it again in the more intense seven trumpets that we're studying right now. Difficult times like the ones we're in now is why he gave John this interlude in chapter 10 and 11. In chapter 10, John sees an angel or messenger of the covenant. Again, John's given another vision of Christ uh, as the sovereign Lord of all the earth. And this renewed vision of the Lord Jesus is followed by a renewed call to John in chapter 10, verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy, uh, John, go and preach to the nations. And then comes chapter 11 where we find ourselves this morning. And I've referred to this section as, as the comfort and commission of Christ's church. During these difficult days of seven trumpet judgments, and yes, I'm saying that they're happening now. That they've been happening since the day of Pentecost. These aren't things reserved for uh, what many hold as a future period of time, seven years long, called the tribulation. My my, um, I've been saying throughout this time, throughout this study of the book of Revelation, that this whole era is a time of tribulation, even great tribulation. Since the day of Pentecost to today, April 18th, 2021. And we receive this comfort and commission because we live in such difficult times, because we're living in these last days that, uh, you know, we see day by day 
are often savage times. There are four parts to this comfort and commission that we want to look at over the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, the first part concerns the identity of the church. Who is this addressed to? The second part concerns the witness of the church, what we're called to do in this time. And the third part concerns the persecution of the church, uh, something we're told to expect again and again. And then lastly, the fourth part we'll look at uh, in the weeks ahead is the removal of the church. Uh, we'll, we'll examine these as they unfold in chapter 11, but this morning we want to begin with the first part, uh, and, and that's the identity of the church. Who does Christ give this comfort to? Who does Christ commission in this chapter? Uh, Christ gives comfort and commission to his church. Are you a part of his church? Do you know what it means to be a part of his church? And it's not just sitting in the room this morning. Is the comfort and commission he gives, is this addressed to you? Can you lay claim to, to the things that we're going to see in chapter 11? Can you lay claim to the comfort that he offers in these savage days? Well, how can we find out? How can you know if you're a part of Christ's church? How can we collectively know and claim this comfort for ourselves? Well, in verses 1 and 2, there are three defining characteristics of the church. Three defining characteristics of the church in our passage. Are, are these three characteristics true of you? And by that, we can find out whether or not this does apply to us. It's a very important question. Can you walk away and console yourself with these words today or not? Well, let's look at these three characteristics. And the first characteristic of the church we see is that it consists of those in proximity to God. It's those who are near to Him. Uh, believers are those who have direct access to God through Christ. And we find this proximity, this nearness in the second half of verse 1. Look at what it says in verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. What is this talking about? This temple and altar and those who worship there. What's referred to in that, in that last phrase? And these are things that we need to identify to understand what's going on. Uh, I'm going to ask for your full attention. These three things are a little tricky. And so, please, if you've ever paid attention, please pay attention now. And hang with me here so we can talk about the temple and the altar and those who worship there. What is that? What, what is this talking about? Well, first, let's identify the temple. What's that referring to? 
Well, there's three options to choose from. One is that it refers to a future temple. Uh, there are many who believe that there will be a future seven-year period called the Tribulation, and many hold that during that future time that a Jewish temple similar to the one in the New Testament will be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. There are many, in fact, most Christians probably think that this is a reference to a temple, uh, an actual future temple that will be rebuilt on Mount Zion, where a remnant of Jewish believers will offer sacrifices and worship during the first part of that seven-year period. Many of you grew up hearing this, and, and so this isn't something out of the blue. But the first option is, is an actual temple. I, I don't think it is. Uh, and I don't think it is for two reasons. Uh, the first reason I don't think it is, is because um, through his death on the cross, Christ put an end to the Old Testament system of sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Jesus, through his death on the cross, offered the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so there is no need whatsoever for another sacrifice offered in a future temple. Listen to the word of God in Hebrews 10, which in my opinion kind of clinches the deal. But when Christ had offered, uh, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Pretty much uh, um, the ultimate, the icing. It was the finished product. And there's no need for, for more sacrifices. Listen to this uh, comment. When Jesus foretold the destruction of the temple in Matthew, he said nothing about a rebuilt temple. That should not be surprising, since there was no valid purpose for the temple and its priesthood once Christ had died. The temple was a place for sacrificing animals to atone for sin. But Christ's death put an end to all those sacrifices. So, friends, I don't think we're talking about a future temple here, uh, where sacrifices again will be made. And, and I can hear some of you thinking, well, those sacrifices won't atone for sin. Those are made as a memorial to what Christ did. And so that's the point, and you've got it wrong. Well, friend, we've, we already have a memorial. It's called the Lord's Supper. This due in remembrance of me, one ordained by Jesus himself. Well, not only did the death of Christ bring an end to Old Testament sacrifices, the death of Christ brought an end to the entire system of Old Testament worship. That's why we don't meet here in a place like this. That's why there's not a, a huge curtain, and that's why we don't offer sacrifices. 
any longer. Uh, it, his death brought an end to the entire system of worship in the Old Testament, including buildings, altars, priests, special clothing for priests, thank God, sacrifices, incense, and other symbolic elements of Old Testament worship. This was, this was given an exclamation point in Matthew 27, uh, where it says this, and Je this is as Jesus uh, is expiring on the cross, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yield up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's referring to uh, this is a this is a, a closer look at the temple, uh, what's referred to as a sanctuary. This space is called uh, the holy place. This back here is the most holy place, and it's separated by this large curtain. This is cut away, so you can see back here, but it would extend all the way over here. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was torn from top to bottom, as though God just took the thing and ripped it apart like this. Why was that? It's because through Christ, you and I have access to the holy of holies. Through Jesus' death on the cross and trusting in his atoning death, we have access to God. We don't go through a priest who could only go in once a year. Luke, uh, Leviticus 16. Listen to Hebrews again. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the curtain that is through his flesh and, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of, of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water we have access to this inner place that this guy down here the high priest I'm assuming uh, could only enter once a year, and that with incense and with the blood of an offering. So friends, there's no need for another temple because Christ put an end to sacrifice, and Christ put an end to that whole system through his payment uh, for sin on the cross. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is written to, to Jewish people who want to go back to that. And the writer of the Hebrews is essentially saying, are you out of your mind? Do you want to go back to that? What we have is far better. You can't go back. And if a whole book of the Bible is dedicated to uh, leaving that system behind, why would God then uh, erect another one for Jewish believers to worship at? And so... A couple of you disagree with me, I know it, but that's okay. But in my opinion, there will be no future temple. There's the curtain again. It's not a future temple. Let's, okay, still hanging on, still hanging in there with me. Some people think it's a past temple, that, that this is that temple I just showed you, and, and that this is talking about when it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But this says... That building called the sanctuary is going to be preserved. Nope. 
uh, I don't have a picture. That, that building I pointed out to you, this is going to tell us that that's preserved and kept, but, but the Romans leveled it. So this can't be about a past temple. Well, then what's it about? It's about the present temple. The present temple. Pastor Rob, what's the present temple? You are. You are. And this very familiar verse says it, which is stuck. <laughs> Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then in... Uh, and, 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 Wow, the, the thing I was going to point out to you about this slide is, is when it says, do you not know you are God's temple? The use plural. And, and, and Paul's saying, do y'all not know that you are God's temple? And so as we have assembled here today, God is with us. His spirit is present as we assemble to worship him. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, it says the same thing. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Not only collectively, but individually, the Spirit of God resides in you. You individually are His temple, and we collectively are His temple. It's not a future temple. It's not a past temple. It's the present temple that he's talking about. Rise and measure the temple of God. Rise and measure believers. Rise and measure the church of Christ. This is the temple. The first thing we have to identify. There's another thing here we need to figure out what he's talking about, and that's the altar. And I've got a picture of the altar that I, I hope they can fix. And we'll all just pray for our men who do a wonderful job. And Well, many think it's at the altar of burnt offering that stood in front of the temple. You know, they made the sacrifices on it. And so many think that it's that altar. But again, we've just seen Christ made the last sacrifice in his self. Why would there be further burnt offering? No, this is not the altar that stood outside the sanctuary. This is not the altar John's describing. Uh, this is probably called the altar of incense, and that was inside the sanctuary, and that was the little altar you saw, the little priest, that tiny guy uh, standing in front of, right in front of the curtain. And every day of atonement, he would put altar on, uh, incense on that altar before he went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And the cloud from the incense would go in and, and fill the room so that he probably would not be able to see the presence of God above the Ark of the Covenant. It was to, to protect him. And that, that cloud of incense uh, represented uh, was a picture looking forward. It's a picture of the mediation of Jesus Christ and his intercession for you and me and how we enter the same way through the mediation of our Lord Jesus and, and through his intercession for us. You know, the, with the priest, it was literal incense. With, with, with us, it's Christ uh, standing in our place, his mediation, his being a go-between. We, we enter the, the holy place through him. That's the altar. He's talking about we still uh, approach 
the presence of God through the mediation and intercession of Christ. And so this is the altar uh, talked about here. Um, so let's move on. Let me talk about the third thing. Uh, the temple, the altar, those who worship. We're talking about that building now, not the, not the whole courtyard, uh, the, the temple complex. This, this is the whole temple complex. And the, the, the temple that John's talking about is this building. It's also called the sanctuary. Let me see if I can... Okay, here's our altar of incense. And here's our high priest again making an offering right there. Yep, the altar of incense where he would then enter into the most holy place. Uh, and because of Christ, we have confidence to enter, as Hebrews tells us. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened. Uh, Paul says we have confidence to enter in Ephesians 11. We've gone on to the worshipers, though, and let me catch up to where we are. It just went blank. Well, who cares? <laughs> who are the worshipers? Who's, who can enter the sanctuary? Well, back then it was just the high priest. But who enters the sanctuary now? Every one of us through Christ. Those who can enter the, the holy place and also the most holy place. Uh, and, and, and because of Christ, you and I have direct access to the very presence of God. And we can live day by day in nearness and proximity to him. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 4. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as, our Lord, as the Lord our God is, is to us? In Psalm 75, David says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. And Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And the Word encourages us in James 4.8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And in Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, uh, these are the worshipers who, because of Christ, can draw near to the very presence of God. These are the worshipers here. And, and, and you and I, if we know Christ, we have direct access to God's very presence and live day by day in proximity to him. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says, There are many locks in my house and all with different keys. But I have one master key which opens all. So the Lord has many treasuries and secrets shut up from unspiritual minds with locks which they cannot open. But he who walks in fellowship with Jesus possesses the master key which will admit him to all the blessings of the covenant. Yes, to the very heart of God. Through the well-beloved, we have access to God, to heaven, to every secret of the Lord. Do you have the master key? Do you have access through Christ to, 
into the most holy place, the presence of God. Unless you have uh, turned from sin to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you do not. You are not near to him. You are not in proximity to him. But if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and trusted in him as your Savior and Lord, you are one of the worshipers described here in verse 1. So, the first defining characteristic of the church here is that they are those in proximity to God those near to him, those who have access to him through Christ. Well, there's a second characteristic as as we look at our passage further. The second characteristic, not only those who are in proximity to God, second, the second characteristic we're given here is those who are protected by God. The church consists of those who are protected by him. Uh, who are marked out for God's protection and care. There are two things I want to point out here about this protection. Look back uh, to the beginning of verse 1. I want you to see those who are measured. First, I want you to see the measured. Look at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring line like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Uh, The measuring rod, actually measuring reed, it was a type of reed that grew along the Jordan River. It could grow up to 12 feet high, 15, or even 20 feet high. That's quite uh, tall. 12 feet would be twice as tall as me. And John was given this piece of reed and said, go measure He was called to go measure like a surveyor would set out to measure a piece of property. Uh, Like you and I would use a yardstick. Do you remember the old yardstick? And you and I would use a measuring tape, which is far more common now. And just as a surveyor would be sent out to determine the exact boundaries of a piece of property and measure them, so John here is being sent out with a surveyor's rule to measure Mark out and identify Christ's church. This measuring symbolizes the knowledge and care that God provides for his people. John is determining here the boundaries of the true church that God has committed himself to care for. And the church of Christ throughout the ages is measured off marked out, and protected by him. Uh, It says this in 2 Timothy 2, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Listen to this scholar explain it to us. The purpose of making these measurements is to define the area that is holy from that which is profane. Measuring means to protect God's temple, altar, and people. John's task is to safeguard that which God has set aside as holy and to shield it from intrusion and desecration. The destroyer cannot enter the place that God has marked off as holy 
And within these boundaries, his people are secure. That does not mean, of course, that we're immune to trouble. It does not automatically make us immune to the coronavirus. It does not automatically shield us from persecution from the world. And we'll see this clearly as we go further. What it does mean is that the church of Christ, all those who rely on the atoning death of Jesus, cannot be harmed spiritually. They will persevere in their faith despite persecution. They are kept by God. And his word makes this clear to us in 1 Peter 1. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This measuring, this protecting, is similar to what we saw back in chapter 7. You might not recall, but in chapter 7, we saw the saints sealed by God. The name of God was placed on their foreheads, protecting them from, from all spiritual harm. It was his mark of ownership. Uh, his mark of protection. And then the, the very next thing we see in chapter 7 is all those who are sealed. It's a great multitude, as it turns out, safely delivered into the presence of God in eternity, standing before his throne and praising him. That's, this is similar to that seal back in chapter 7. Uh, the saints, the temple of God, those who worship there are marked off, they're measured out, they're protected, they're defined, they're cared for throughout this age. He marks them off as his own and sets them apart from spiritual harm. You know, there are, there are many accounts of this, many, many accounts it, it's happening all the time, friend. And we go through day by day without ever thinking about ways God is keeping us. The more dramatic accounts typically come from missionaries. And those on the very edge, those on the battlefield, the front line as we often refer to the mission field. And this one I'm going to read to you is from a missionary in, from the 1800s. His name was John Patton. Now, he has a magnificent-looking beard, if you ever Google his name. Much like uh, Chris's. You don't look, he's got a lot more wrinkles, Chris, so you're, you're good. But a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands uh, in the South Pacific, it's now, referred, uh, it's now called Van, uh, Vanuatu, but the distinguishing characteristic of the New Hebrides Islands was cannibals. It says, one night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station intent on burning out the Patton's and killing them. Patton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers leave. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them. And the chief replied in surprise, who were all those men with you there? 
Patton knew no men were present. But the chief said he was afraid to attack Patton and his wife because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. Now, if only our daily care and protection were that dramatic. But it's usually not. But God does in countless ways keep us and guard us. The very things that he is indicated by measuring us. He does that in countless ways, day by day, even though they're not quite as dramatic as this. Those in close proximity to God. All those trusting in the atoning death of Christ are measured and they're marked off and they're protected. But but then after seeing the measured, I want to show you secondly those who are not measured. This is a little more sobering, but this is the second thing we see here uh, about those who are protected. There are some who are not marked off. There are some who are not protected by God. Uh, look down in, into uh, uh, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. Who does the court represent? Remember, we're, we're in the sanctuary, that building we saw represented on, on, the, on, the, on the picture. And this is referring to the courts outside that area. There's several courts, court of the priests, uh, court of the women, court of the Gentiles. Uh, this refers to all those who are not in the sanctuary, who are not in God's presence. This court represents those who profess to be Christians. But who have never entered the sanctuary through the atoning death of Jesus. This court represents those who are Christians in aim only. Those who claim to be Christians but, but are not. And I want you to see even, even more sobering than this. that they're actually um, left out, excluded. Uh, the term used in verse 2, notice again, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. That phrase is the Greek word ekbalo. It means to throw out, cast out, exclude. In other words, do not include those outside in God's protecting measurement, John. Cast them out. Joel Beakey comments, the idea is that those in the inner court in the sanctuary who worship God are safe and counted. But those in the outer courts on the circumference are not counted and are liable to be trampled by the world. This is what we read about in our scripture reading today. And just let me remind you of a few verses of that passage from Luke 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, We ate it and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Same word in verse 2. Cast out. Excluded. Not measured. Not included in the protective care of God. So, are you on the inside or the outside? Have you entered the sanctuary through the atoning death of Jesus? Or are you merely going through the motions? Are you relying on Christ's death as the payment for your sin? Or are you just acting like a Christian to keep mom and dad off your back? It's really very serious. And it says those who have not entered through Christ be excluded. The church consists of those who have been protected by Him. Measured out. It consists first of those who are in proximity to Him. Second, those who are protected by Him those who are protected by God, but the third defining characteristic of the church is those who are persecuted by the world. Followers of Christ will face opposition throughout this age, and this is the very thing we've seen. And we see this persecution uh, down in the second half of verse 2. Look at your Bible with me. It says, For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, what's that? Are we talking about another place now? I mean, is this different from what you've been saying? What's, what's the holy city? Well, come on, everybody knows the holy city is Jerusalem, right? It's even called the holy city today. Throughout the Old Testament, even in the, in the Gospels, up to Matthew chapter 27, it's called the holy city. It's not called the holy city in the book of Revelation. Look at what the city of Jerusalem is called in the book of Revelation. If you glance down with me, skip ahead to, chapter, to verse 8. It says, and 
And their dead bodies, speaking of the witnesses, we'll see them next week, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem. So here, shockingly, Jerusalem is lumped together with Sodom, known for immorality, and Egypt, known for the persecution of the saints. And they're all lumped in a group called the Great City. <coughs> Excuse me. It's throughout Revelation, the Great City as that community organized and opposed to Christ in his rule. And, and it's as though that the holy city of Jerusalem is now no longer the holy city, but is now part of the world system opposed to Christ. Well, who is, who is the world city then, Pastor Rob? Uh, who is the holy city? Holy City, here in verse 2, is the place where God dwells with His people. And later in Revelation, we'll see it called the New Jerusalem. But right now, it is His temple, His people. Uh, the Holy City is therefore the persecuted, true people of God among whom He is present. It's the camp of the saints. But from the Holy City, I want you to notice another thing here. From the holy city, I want to talk about the trampling. And again, verse 2, and they will trample the holy city. That means to, to tread underfoot, to tread on something, uh, trying to destroy it. We would say stomp on it. And while Christ uh, has measured off and marked out and protected his church, God still allows the nations to trample it, to persecute it, to attempt to destroy it as we see it across the world now, and even as we see it some places in the United States of America. He allows the trampling. This is nothing new. His word says in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul and Barnabas told the disciples, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And finally, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Yes, the church of Christ is measured and marked off and protected, but God allows it to be trampled underfoot by the nations, to be persecuted. So the holy city, the trampling, and then third, the timing. How long does that last? It says, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And the same... This is a reference to three and a half years. Again, many th think it applies to a future seven-year period called the Tribulation, half of that period. It's referred to as 1,260 days in the next verse. Either way you slice it, it's three and a half years. Remember, we've talked about the number seven throughout, how it represents fullness, completeness, and three and a half would be half of that, of course, and represents incompleteness. 
something suspended before the full course takes place, something interrupted. So what this says is God allows his church to be trampled for a limited period of time, indefinite, uh, and we see it's throughout this age, but it is limited by his sovereign hand. Uh, He governs and restricts the persecution of the church for a limited period of time. This is the persecution of the church, the third defining characteristic. So I started asking this question, how do you know if you're part of Christ's church? We've looked at three characteristics today. Uh, His church uh, consists of those in proximity to God. His church consists of those who are protected by God. And finally here in verse 2, it consists of those who are persecuted by the world. If this describes you, then you know you can lay hold of the comfort offered in chapter 11. You know too that the commission he'll give, we'll see next time, also is given to you. If uh, these three defining characteristics define you, then you are part of his church and part of the comfort and commission that he lays out for us in chapter 11. Let me pray for us as we wind down. Savior, by your grace, please take these tricky verses and please press the truth home to our hearts. Let us know whether or not we belong to Christ's church. Thank you, Father, for the immense privilege you give us of access to your presence through your Son, Jesus. Thank you that you have measured us off, marked us, and protected us. And Father, thank you that you've limited the persecution that the the world is allowed to dispense upon the church. Thank you that you restrain the world and that you hold it in its leash. Father, I pray that you would enable us to examine our lives based on these three characteristics and that you would use them to help us determine whether we are part of your son's church or not. We pray this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.